Amen. Well, do please take a seat. And do please turn with me to page 275 in the Bibles and to our reading, uh, 1 Samuel chapters 5 and 6. When I was at a university, I remember I was always surprised uh, when it came to exams at the end of the year, not because I didn't know that they were going to happen, but because when I turned up to take them, uh, some of the people, some of the students who were there for the exam, supposedly now grown-ups, uh, used to bring not only their pencil case and their calculator, but also uh, some sort of, of mascot, uh, some sort of, of toy. People aspiring to be some of the great minds of a generation bringing with them something cuddly that they hoped would give them comfort, courage, perhaps even a bit of good luck. This isn't mine. This this is Jonathan's. I just brought it so that you could see. Now, taking a mascot into an exam hall is harmless enough, isn't it? Our problem, though, is that we can treat God as though he were a mascot. Someone who is there to reassure us. Someone who is a comfort. Someone who is at our disposal. Someone who it's good to have around in times of stress. Someone who is soft and cuddly. Someone there to help. But that is not who God is. We saw that in chapter 4 last week as we thought about ways in which we try to control God, dominating and manipulating him when all the time he is in control of us. And if trying to unleash God on our enemies as though we could control him was the problem there, today we see a problem of trying to domesticate God. To make him no more than our little mascot. Now it's true, if we were reading 1 Samuel for the first time, then as we get to the end of chapter 4, we, we might think that God wasn't much better than a stuffed dog. After all, he has just suffered a, what seems like a humiliating defeat at the hands of the Philistines and his throw, his footstool, the ark, has been taken off into captivity. What's going on? And so in these chapters, 5 and 6, our writer gives us a view of God as he really is. The Lord, whose greatness is unequalled, whose glory is unapproachable, and whose grace is unchanging. Now I know the reading's quite long, so do keep it open with me as we think about each of those in turn. See, first, the Lord's greatness is unequalled. Look at chapter 5, verse 1 with me. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. Now, the Philistines were a polytheistic uh, people. We saw that actually last week in chapter 4, didn't we, when the Ark of the Lord is brought into the Israelite camp before the battle. What do they say? They say, oh, we're in trouble. A God has come into the camp. These are the gods who struck down the Egyptians with all kinds of plague. They believe in gods. They believe in lots of gods. Uh, But for them, really, Dagon was the top god, uh, believed to be the father of Baal, the father-in-law of Ashtoreth. Uh, And this isn't the first time we come across a Dagon on the Philistines either, because in the story of Samson... It is the temple of Dagon in Gath that he destroys at the end of his life. Do you remember when uh, chained and blinded, he asks them, well, where's the main pillar? And rather stupidly they tell him, and he pushes it over, and 3,000 people are killed. That is a big temple, isn't it? So the Philistines took their religion seriously. 
And now that they have the ark, well, they think that they have another god to add to their collection. And they bring the ark to this temple of Dagon and place it beside the statue of Dagon that stood there. Now, some see this as a sign of humiliation. They're they're sort of humiliating the ark by bringing it to the temple of the god that has just defeated it. But I think that given their respect for God, for the God of Israel in chapter 4, it's more likely that the Philistines thought that they had another God now. Another God on their side. Another God to add to their collection. And so they set the ark beside Dagon in the temple. It's a great day for them. Perhaps for us though, we tend more often to do things the other way around. You see, we set other things beside the Lord. So that while we want to acknowledge and worship him, we're quite happy to bring our careers, our children, our comfort, our relationships alongside as equals, certainly of equal importance to us, so that the Lord gets a look in, but no more. He he is our mascot God there when we need him. But the Lord's greatness is unequalled. The Lord is God and besides him there is no other, he declared to his people. And that's what the Philistines find the next day, isn't it? See verse 3? They discover Dagon lying prostrate before the ark. It's a funny scene, isn't it? I'm sure we're supposed to smile at the irony of this great God of the Philistines having to be helped to his feet. And we're supposed to smile again the next morning when they come to the temple and this time find Dagon not just lying down but decapitated and his hands chopped off. The bits lying on the threshold so that anyone entering would immediately see that Dagon was no God at all. Headless, unable to hear, to think, to speak, to see. Handless, unable to act, unable to help his people. But if we smile at them, we need also to see how laughable we are too. For the idols we follow are just as impotent as Dagon, and they will share his fate. Yet how much of our time do we spend nurturing them? How long do we look to them for answers or meaning or purpose when they have nothing to say and no power to say it? There was a big scandal earlier on uh, this year about the selling or, or rather mis-selling of uh, payment protection insurance. If you've ever come across that, it's a sort of thing you get when you buy a, a sofa or some white goods or something um, in case you can't pay it back. Um, I don't know if you're affected by it, I wasn't, but I was flicking on television earlier this week and they had the story of a man who had spent £12,000 for insurance over a number of years, only to find that when he did make a claim, the insurance didn't cover him uh, because of something in the small print. You see, all that cost, all that effort, over something that couldn't help him anyway. And it is the same with our idols, our Dagons. It's the same with your bank balance, with your family, with your friends, with your wardrobe, whatever it is that you look to for fulfilment, for identity. Because for all the time and energy we put into establishing and protecting them, those things are powerless. Powerless when we need them most. Don't worship Dagons beside the Lord. 
And worse still, don't treat the Lord Almighty as though he were no more than Dagon. Don't think that the Lord needs help the way Dagon does here, as though he's unable to stand on his own. Don't think that without us, uh, the Lord will not be able to work out his will or defeat his enemies or grow his kingdom. The Lord doesn't need us. Here, alone, he defeats a nation that the previous day has wiped out 30,000 Israelites. God doesn't need us. No, we need him. I'm reminded of Psalm 50, verse 12, where the Lord speaks and says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? No, sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honour me. See, the Lord is no Dagon. His greatness is unequalled. And lastly, that means that he reigns and rules everywhere, even in the very heart of enemy territory. So don't confine the Lord in your minds to your small group or to a Sunday service or to the Western world. No, he is unequalled. You may be the only Christian in your family, but God reigns there. You may spend your working life in a hedonistic office or surrounded by sceptics, but God reigns there. You may look with dismay at our society, which, like the Philistines, treats God at best as if he's just one of many, with no desire to turn to him. But God reigns here. His greatness is unequalled. And then second is, the passage moves on, the Lord's glory is unapproachable. And this really comes through in the bulk of the reading where the presence of the Ark of the Lord causes death and panic, firstly throughout the Philistine kingdom, uh, but then again even when it is back on Israelite soil. Have a look at verse 6 of chapter 5. The Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumours. When the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon our God. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod. Where Dagon's hands have been cut off, the Lord's hand is powerfully active and his glory is being shown. You may remember that at the end of chapter 4, when news of the ark's capture reaches Eli's daughter-in-law, she names her baby boy Ichabod, no glory, and cries out in anguish, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Well now, in Hebrew, the word for glory and the word for heavy are one and the same. Incidentally, that means that the next time you step on your scales at home and find yourself looking at a disappointingly high number, you can at least console yourself with the fact that you're looking particularly glorious that morning. But you see, here the point is that where God's glory seems to have gone from Israel, now it is being revealed in Ashdod. And it is devastating. As we see this outbreak of tumours 
in the city. Later on we find out that there were rats as well. Uh, That's led some people to guess that the outbreak was of something like bubonic plague. I don't know, but I know that I wouldn't have wanted to be living anywhere near the ark in those days. And certainly that's the conclusion that the Philistines come to as well, isn't it? And so we get this uh, set of events where they start passing the ark around like a hot potato. First in Ashdod, then moving over to Gath, then to Ekron, everywhere bringing affliction and panic. As the Philistines realise that this Lord is powerful beyond their control and that they cannot bear to be in his presence. And so in verse 11 they call together the rulers of the Philistines and say, send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. And they didn't just call out to the rulers because verse 12 tells us that the outcry of the city went up to heaven itself. (laughs) These are the people who just a chapter earlier when faced with the ark in battle shout out to each other, be strong, be men and fight. But now they're on their knees. They know there's nothing they can do to fight the Lord. They know that they can't even be in the same place as him. And they know that they're answerable to him. That's what comes out in chapter 6. As the Philistines now turn to their priests to find out what to do, how to give this ark back to Israel. Look at verse 2 of of chapter 6 there. The Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, if you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it away empty. But by all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, what guilt offering should we send to him? They replied, five gold tumours and five gold rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Guilt, that's their issue. God's glory has exposed their guilt. They know it, don't they? But they don't really know what to do about it. You will search the Mosaic law in vain for instructions about a sacrifice involving gold tumours. <laughs> they don't know what to do. They just know that they've got to do something. They want to make sure that they're not like the Egyptians who did nothing and for whom delay in honouring the Lord just brought more devastation and death. They're not even sure that when they do it, uh, the outcome will will be what they want. Verse 5, perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your lands. And so as an extra test, they make sure uh, that they've got it right by saying that if the cows that they get to take the ark back go in a straight line, straight for Israel, well then it is indeed the Lord whose glory that they have seen at work. Do you know how hard it is to get a cow to walk in a straight line? Neither do I. I've never tried it. It hasn't even occurred to me. I guess it's pretty hard though. I guess it's even harder if you have to get two to do it. Harder still if they've never been yoked together before. And if you get two who've never been yoked together before, whose baby cars you've locked up so that they'll want to go and find them, then it's going to take a miracle. And yet that's what happens. And so this seven-month 
period of devastation comes to an end. Or at least it comes to an end for the Philistines. Because you see, God's glory soon reaps destruction in Israel too. See verse 19? God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the men of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Then they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your place. Now it's not quite clear what the people of Beth Shemesh did to the ark, whether it was just looking at it in the wrong way, or else looking inside it. But either way, the attitude behind it is that they are casual with the Lord. They took him lightly. And so his glory dealt them a heavy blow. And what a sad end to a chapter this is. That this people who mourned so when the glory of the Lord departed, now mourn when that glory returns. God's glory is unapproachable. Hebrews 10 says, It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But do we realise that? Maybe that you're sitting here today and you know that you're not yet a Christian. Do you see who you're up against? This Lord whose greatness is unequalled and whose glory is unapproachable. Yet who you cannot avoid. For he reigns everywhere and always. And his glory reveals our guilt and his hand will be heavy. You cannot defeat him, you cannot escape him, you cannot survive him. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? But even for those of us who are Christians, we can still forget the Lord's glory. When we think of him as our friend, but never with fear. When we ask for him to be our guide, but forget that he is our judge. When we remember his love for us, but forget his hatred of the sin that we love. When we pray that he will be glorified in our church, not realising that that means we are praying for him to destroy as well as bless. No, we follow the Lord Almighty, whose glory is unapproachable and whose greatness is unequalled. And so we're to work out our salvation, not being casual and carefree, but instead with fear and trembling. Because who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? It's a question that would leave us in despair, were it not for the final point here for us. And that is that the Lord's grace is unchanging. Because for both the Israelites and the Philistines here, God's heavy judgment is accompanied by free grace. Let's think of the Philistines first. You see, at the start, they think they have conquered the Lord, don't they? That he's one of theirs now. And so judgment comes on them, but it doesn't come everywhere, does it? No, it only comes near the ark. 
Have you thought that why that was? After all, the guilt is the same everywhere, isn't it? The attitude is the same. It's because the Lord was revealing himself to them. Letting them see his glory. Letting them understand his power, their guilt before him. The fact that he was unapproachable to them. As they moved the ark around from city to city as quickly as they could. Well, he was moving the rats. So that at last they would cry out to heaven for rescue and mercy. And then the Lord is willing to conform to their test, isn't he? Getting those cows to walk straight for their targets, not moving to the left or right. Why? Well, because he knew that the Philistine rulers were watching, following and wondering. And he was saying to them, yes, I am the Lord, the one and only grace, grace that reveals grace that brings an end to those plagues when the Philistines head home but then of course all the more we see grace when we think of Israel because the glory of the Lord returns the glory of the Lord returns to his people, that's the big picture of what's going on in these chapters isn't it Though he left them because of the corruption of their priests, Hophni and Phinehas, who are killed according to the Lord's decree. Though he left them because of the weakness of their leader, Eli, who dies when he hears the ark is gone. Though he left them because of the absence of the word of the Lord in their lives. Though we'll see next week that it was to be another 20 years before they would actually turn to the Lord in repentance. Nonetheless, The Lord returns to his people. He returns with his enemies defeated. No wonder the scene of rejoicing in the field of Joshua on that day. As they saw that cart coming from the distance and these strange cows suddenly stopping by a large rock that is a perfect makeshift altar. As they make sacrifices of thanksgiving that the Lord has returned. Grace for the Philistines, grace for Israel, and grace for us too, as we think to Jesus. The Lord's grace is unchanging. For the whole story here makes us think ahead to the cross and resurrection of our Lord. To that defeat turned into victory. Where Jesus disarmed his enemies, the powers and authorities, making a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Where after three days he returned and said to his people, surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. That is Jesus who is the one who brings us grace, who reveals God's glory and whose greatness we see displayed all on the cross. In the place of judgment, free grace. And with it at last, an answer to 6 verse 20. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? It's a question that crops up again. So just as we finish, turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. That's on page 1238. Revelation 6, let me read from verse 15. 
Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath is come, and who can stand? See, it's the same problem. Who can stand? Who can stand before the one on the throne and before the Lamb? Well, but then look on to chapter 7 and verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord? Here's a great crowd doing just that. And so comes the key question in verse 13. Those in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. See, who can stand? It is those who have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. His blood that endures our judgment and brings us into that trembling intimacy with the Lord. Who can stand before the Lord? All those who trust in the Lord who is, whose greatness is unequaled, whose glory is unapproachable, but whose grace is unchanging, and by whose own blood we are washed clean. Let's pray to him.